All right, so the reading today is Esther 2, 21, 3, or 3, 6. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had, he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So as a bit of a recap for those who might have been missing some weeks over the summer and for the older ones of our kids who are joining us with us, our grade three to fives this morning, we've been spending some time this summer talking about stories and characters in the Bible that we won't normally come across. There are some famous stories, some famous people in the Bible, and we tend to hear those stories a lot, but what we're doing this summer is taking a look at some of the other ones. We're reading between the lines. And this morning we find ourselves in the book of Esther, right in the middle of the Old Testament. And this story takes place 2,500 years ago, 5th century BC. And we're introduced right off the top to one of the characters introduced in the reading this morning, King Xerxes. He's the king of Persia, and he decided at one point in his life, in his reign, to say, I'm going to show just how wealthy I am. And so he decided to throw a week-long banquet. And in this banquet, the, the whole passage, the first chapter of Esther, it tells us about the kind of banquet this was. Just a couple of details for you. Uh, he had goblets of gold made for every guest, and every goblet was unique, so he spared no expense. The wine flowed without end, we're told. And so this banquet goes on all week long. And towards the end of the week, he decides, you know what else I want to show off? I don't want to just show off like my possessions and my wealth. I want to show off my queen. And so he says, go call the queen. Tell her to come in here and display her beauty. Well, the queen was off having a banquet of her own. And when the messengers came in and they said, Queen Vashti, the king would like you to go and display your beauty. She said something to the effect of, heck no, and refused to come. Now, this is a problem. So the messengers come back and they say to the king, actually, the queen said she's not coming to display her beauty in front of all your guests. What should we do? And he's like, what are you talking about? The queen never disobeys me. And, he, and his advisors say, well, we've got to do something. Because if you don't do something here, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. And so they get together and King Xerxes ends up sending messengers to the far reaches of his kingdom, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household. You see, the rationale was that once per people heard about Vashti's fate, all the women will respect their husbands. Right? Like, that's the way to get a wife to respect her husband. Threaten her. Maybe not. 
So Queen Vashti's banished from the king's presence, and the search for a new queen begins. In Esther chapter 2, we're introduced to this morning's lead character, Mordecai. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now, the title of the book is Esther, and with good reason, but this morning we're talking about a secondary character whose character is second to none. You see, every superstar, every hero, every world changer has a room full of people behind them. And Esther acted in a way that made dramatic changes to her world for sure. Um, But Mordecai, this cousin of hers who took her under his wing, he was the one who really helped shape and form her into the woman she would grow to become. You see, when Mordecai's aunt and uncle, Esther's mother and father, passed away, he took it on himself to care for his younger cousin. Now, what happens next in the story is basically an elaborate version of The Bachelor, only it's like ratcheted up a level. Think like when uh, Prince Harry pre-Meghan Markle. So it's like the world's most eligible bachelor, and they decide to have this contest to see who will get to marry him. This is kind of what's going on here. So all people from all over, they're, they're going out to find the most beautiful women that they can out there to participate in this giant beauty pageant for the king, the king to choose who his next queen will be. Well, chapter 2 goes on to describe a lot of what happens in this beauty pageant. And then in verse 17, we read that now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So we set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So these are the first two chapters of this book of Esther, and so far the moral of the story appears to be, ladies, make yourself beautiful and do what you're told. I just want to say that I promise things will get better as the story unfolds. Well, one day, while Mordecai is hanging around outside of the king's gate, trying to keep an eye out for his cousin, he overhears two of the king's officers plotting an assassination. And so he does what he should do to defend his king. He sends word to the king through his cousin Esther. And she talks to the king and says, basically, someone told me this news, that someone's plotting your assassination, and the plot was foiled. That's all. After the conspirators are impaled on poles, another lovely Old Testament image that we'll spare the details for this morning, the story moves right along and introduces us to another character, Haman. Now, right from the start, Mordecai finds himself in hot water here because he refuses to kneel down and pay honor to this man, Haman. We heard this part of the story in the reading. Some people go up to Haman and they say, listen, there's this guy out there, Mordecai, and he for some reason is refusing to kneel and pay you honor when you walk by. Something should be done about this. So he's questioned about his actions, and in the conversation, his nationality is revealed. Mordecai, the one who will not kneel before Haman, is a Jew. Now, a few verses earlier, we'd actually heard something similar about this nationality. We read in Esther 2, verse 20, that Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. So when she's going into this king's court and participating in this giant beauty pageant, he's like, don't mention that you're a Jew. It's not going to go well for you. She continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Now, Jews have a long history of persecution. 
of being hated and abused by their neighbors. This story took place 2,500 years ago, but a thousand years before this, the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians because they were growing and becoming too numerous, and they were abused by their Egyptian masters. And so, really, this is not the first time this has happened to the Jewish people, but this hatred was there. Uh, We read about it in chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 here. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. The same rage has been taken out on the Jewish people time and time again. I think for us, living at this point in history, when we think about persecution of the Jews. We think about World War II. We think about Nazi Germany. We think about concentration camps. We think about this kind of, this part of our own relatively recent history. And so for at least 3,500 years, uh, this has been the plight of this group of people. Adolf Hitler once said, today I believe that I'm acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. By defending myself against the Jew, I'm fighting for the work of the Lord. What is it? Like, what is it that makes people think that they could be doing the world a service, or in this case, even thinking that they could do God a service by mistreating this group of people? Just as the king's advisors convinced him to dispose of the former queen, the king is now convinced to dispose of an entire people group. Haman really wants this plot of his to go through, so he offers to give a large sum of money towards helping eliminate the Jews. But the king says, keep the money. Do with the people as you please. And so Haman writes this edict, which is sent all throughout the land. The order was to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, and to plunder their goods. The next verse says, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. I mean, imagine what it would be like to all of a sudden, you're just going about minding your business, things are going well in your city, and all of a sudden the rumors start going around that that a particular group of people in your community are about to be exterminated. Like, what would that be like? I was reading the local paper this week, and and there was this news of this protest at Waterloo Park by the animal rights activists from the University of Waterloo, and the reporting wasn't very favorable. It said that, you know, pointed out that only four people showed up for the protest. It's like, obviously, the city of Waterloo is not really upset about this. But you can imagine if there was, like, news spreading out there that, like, an entire people group in our city was going to be destroyed, the protest would gather more than four people. And that's what begins to happen in the city of Susa. People are like, what is going on here? This is nuts. And so chapter 4 begins with the story of Mordecai. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, that this edict had been set out there, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This terrible news is spreading all over the place, and people are just bewildered. People don't know what to do, and so they're tearing their clothes. They're dressing in these these mourning garments. They're wailing out, crying out for help. But behind the palace walls, Esther knows nothing. 
She doesn't have a clue about any of this. She hasn't heard about any edict. But some of her advisors come, or some of her helpers, they, they see Mordecai out in the street tearing his clothes and wailing and crying out, and they go in and they say, your cousin's acting like a crazy person out there. And so they go out and investigate what's happening, and he tells them, he said, this is what's happening to my people. Like, you need to tell Esther what's going on. And so he sends her a message. He basically says, Esther, like, you're the queen. You have some power. You have some authority here. You can do something about this terrible situation. You can stop it before it's too late. And Esther responds, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So Mordecai says this terrible thing is happening. They're about to exterminate all of our people. You've got to do something. And her response is, I can't do that. I might be killed. Came across this image this week. Fear affects us all in different ways. This guy's face is just amazing. But then when you see what he's so afraid of, it's a water balloon contest. Like like people are tossing water balloons and he's just like, no! So sometimes our fear is just out of proportion. Like he should have had like maybe mild displeasure on his face, right? But Esther has reason to be afraid. She has reason to fear for her life. She's like, I can't just approach the king. If I do that, the law says that I have to be put to death. So what am I supposed to do here? What do I do in this situation? Mordecai sends another message back to the queen, his cousin. In Esther chapter 4, verse 12 to 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone among all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time... Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Now, before I finish reading what he said, there's another line. I just want to point out the faith that he had in God. He's obviously disappointed by his cousin's response, that she's giving into this fear. And he's like, listen, you can choose not to respond here, and I want to make it clear that I believe God will bring a deliverance from somewhere else. Like, God's coming through here. Something is, something is going to happen to save the Jews. Like, it's going to happen. It's important to think about this. Elie Wiesel, who was the Nobel Prize, uh, won the Nobel Prize for Literature, telling a story about living uh, in a concentration camp. He says that action is the only remedy to indifference, the most insidious danger of all. Mordecai is pushing for action here. You can't be indifferent about this. You can't protect yourself. You can't look out for number one here. You can't fear for your own life. You have to act. That's the only way to respond here. And so he sends this charge back, this challenge back to Esther. And then he says at the end of his little message, a line that, if we talk about reading between the lines of the Bible, this is probably the one line from Esther that you will recognize and be familiar with. Who knows, he says, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Like, who knows? Maybe this whole journey you've been on, this wild, crazy journey that you've been on your whole life is for this moment for you to act with decision. Last week, we talked about power, and we talked about the challenge to name our sources of power, to be aware of the opportunities we have to make influence, right? And Esther was not aware of that in this moment, and that's what Mordecai is reminding her I mean, remember how she came to her royal position, a beauty pageant. She's chosen because she's beautiful. And now she has an opportunity to save the lives of her nation, of her people. So even under such a a negative, uh, 
disrespectful, demeaning beginning, she has an opportunity to use power and influence. And what about Mordecai in this situation? I think about the fact that he needs, about how we all need someone in our corner like that. When we're giving in to fear, when we're concerned about how our involvement or action in something might have a negative consequence on us, that we need someone to be able to push us in this direction to say, maybe you are the person to respond in this circumstance. And equally important, we need to be the person who can be in the corner for someone else. We need to be like Mordecai. When someone is fearful, we need to be able to say, hey, wait a second, maybe you should step up here. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to respond. Eventually, Esther does respond with courage to match her beauty, and she calls the Jews of Susa to fast and to pray. She says, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This is a good story. This is certified fresh right here. This is good stuff. It's like Donald Miller said, the great stories go to those who don't give in to fear. Being afraid is fine. That's a human reaction. But the great stories go to the people who don't give in to that fear. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. He spreads the words, fast, pray. The queen is going to approach the king. We need to get ready. Now, the book of Esther that we have in our Bibles is, uh, was originally written in Hebrew, and this is the translation we have. There are some Bibles, specifically like a Catholic Bible, would have an addition to the book of Esther. And so years later, there was a, a translation of Esther that was in the Greek, and there were sections of the, of the story that were added in. And so they're not officially in the Bibles that we have, but they can be interesting for us to try to imagine what people centuries and centuries ago thought about this story, how they were processing it as they tried to fill in some of the blanks. And one of the sections I want to read to you, it it happens right here at the end of chapter 4 before the beginning of chapter 5. So Mordecai goes out, he tells everyone it's time to pray, it's time to fast, and then this addition in the Greek records his prayer. So you won't find it in your Bible, but I want to read this imagined prayer of Mordecai at this point in his life. Then Mordecai prayed to the Lord, calling to remembrance all the works of the Lord. He said, O Lord, Lord, you rule as king over all things, for the universe is in your power, and there is no one who can oppose you when it is your will to save Israel, for you have made heaven and earth and every wonderful thing under heaven. You are Lord of all, and there is no one who can resist you. The Lord, you know all things. You know, O Lord, that it was not in insolence or pride or for any love of glory that I did this and refused to bow down to this proud Haman. For I would have been willing to kiss the soles of his feet to save Israel. But I did this so that I might not set human glory above the glory of God. And I will not bow down to anyone but you who are my Lord. And I will not do these things in pride. And now, O Lord, God and King, God of Abraham, spare your people, for the eyes of our foes are upon us to annihilate us, and they desire to destroy the inheritance that has been yours from the beginning. Do not neglect your portion, which you redeem for yourself out of the land of Egypt. Hear my prayer, and have mercy upon your inheritance. Turn our mourning into feasting, that we may live and sing in praise to your name, O Lord. Do not destroy the lips of those who praise you. And all Israel cried out mightily, for their death was before their eyes. Now, in this expanded passage, Mordecai does something repeatedly that is conspicuously absent in the rest of the text. He mentions God. Esther is one of the two books in the entire Bible that does not mention God, Song of Songs being the other one. And so this addition is like, wait a second, like, 
God's not even uh, in this story anywhere. And so they, all of a sudden in this prayer of Mordecai, it's like, God, Lord, God, Lord, all the time to remind people. And I thought it was interesting as we were singing that song, Everything is Sacred, there's this tendency we think to, re- to forget the fact that God is involved in this story all the way through. And we'll come back to that a bit later on. So he talks about God and he prays and the people of Susa pray. And after the three-day fast, Esther prepares to approach the king. Now, have you ever had to tell someone that you care about something that could get you in trouble? Maybe you were a child and you broke something or a teenager and you broke something bigger and you had to tell your parent and you were afraid of disappointing them or being punished. Or maybe you were a student and you didn't finish that assignment and you have to hand it in and you don't want your teacher or professor to to come down hard on you and you want to impress them and and you're just feeling like, how is this going to go well? Maybe you're a spouse and you got an expensive speeding ticket and you just fear like telling the person like, oh my gosh, like they're going to be so upset with me here. Well, like multiply whatever this experience is by 100 as Esther begins to imagine what it would be like to approach the king illegally to ask that he reverse this edict that he had just decreed. But she has the courage in the end. I love this line from Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. He says, if you cease to utter falsehoods and live according to the dictates of your conscience, you can maintain your nobility, even when facing the ultimate threat. If you abide truthfully and courageously by the highest of ideals, you will be provided with more security and strength than will be offered by any short-sighted concentration on your own safety. If you live properly, fully, you can discover meaning so profound that it protects you even from the fear of death. And I read this and thought, this is what's happening with Esther. She's like, I'm going to be true to who I am. I'm going to be true to who God is and who he's called me to be. And it doesn't matter if death is how I meet, if death is the consequence here. Now, Mordecai asked Esther to beg the king to spare her people. That was his plan. But she doesn't do that. She's like, no, I've got a better idea here. Like Vashti before her, Esther decides to test the king's leadership. But this time she does it with purpose and with tact. And so she decides, she goes and, and, and she comes before the king, and he's just like, something's not right with you. Tell me what's up, queen. And, uh, and she basically is like, yeah, something is bothering me. There's no doubt about it. And the king asks. He says, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. I'll give you whatever you want. Well, she says, I want to hold a banquet. So the queen sets up a banquet as an occasion to address an earlier part of the story that had been prematurely cut off. You might have thought it was awkward when I stopped in the middle of the story and didn't conclude it, but that's because the writer of Esther didn't conclude it. Remember Mordecai's act of heroism? He reports this attempted assassination, and then they foil foil the plot. Well, nothing happens to Mordecai. He doesn't get any benefit from that. He's not honored in any way or protected in any way. They get the criminals, and the king goes about his business. So the queen decides that she's going to bring this story back up. So, she sets up a banquet. She wants to address this part of the story. And as this banquet is being set up, Haman is like, oh, I get it. She is getting ready to honor me. I am going to be honored here. And he gets to become giddy with anticipation. But at the same time, he keeps thinking about this guy Mordecai. All this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And so he goes home to his wife and his friends, and he tells him, he's like, I feel like there's this big party being thrown for me, but this guy, this Jew Mordecai, he's still here. And his wife and friends are like, you know what you should do? You should have him killed. That's what you should do. And he's like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. They're like, you should build a giant pole and then impale his body on it so the whole city can see. That's what you should do. He's like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So he goes out and he has this giant pole built. And just like let us pause in the story for a minute and say like, like, I said before, we all want to be people like Mordecai, and we need people like Mordecai in our lives. Well, we don't need people like Haman's family. 
you know? Like you're griping about something, you're complaining about something, and then your family is like, yeah, that's right, you know? Like that's the worst kind of family we can be. That's the worst kind of friend we can be, where we're encouraging this negative attitude in another person. Well, that night, the king gets up from his bed, he's restless, he starts reading through the annals of his reign, where he discovers that Mordecai had actually never been rewarded for his faithfulness. He's like, wait a second. He said, this guy saved my life, and we didn't do anything for him. And so he has this idea. He comes into the court the next day, and Haman is there. Haman's like, all right, you're ready to honor me here. And the king asks him a question. What should be done for the man whom the king wants to honor? And Haman's like, oh, this is going to be good. He's like, well, personally, I would put, like, a real fancy robe on him, and then I'd get a horse, and I'd have him sit on the horse, and everyone, like, walk through the town and cheer and, like, wave flags at him. And that would just be, like, an idea. It's the first thing that just came to my head. And the king's like, go at once. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Like, this is awesome. Man, you can't write better comedy than this. So Haman does this, parades this person that he hates through the city. He just can't even stand this is going on. Okay, banquet, night number two. Esther reveals that the reason that she is so upset, she says that actually it's my people who you've had sent this edict out to destroy. And the king's like, who came up with such a terrible idea? Who would ever think of something so awful? And then she points and says, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Well, can you guess what comes next? Haman is impaled on the very pole that he built for Mordecai. End of his story. But not the end of Mordecai's story. For Mordecai, we read about what happens to him. Chapter 8, verse 15. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. Mordecai comes up with a solution then to stop the genocide. The result, unfortunately, is a flurry of violence throughout chapter 9, but then the establishment of a new Jewish feast, the Feast of Purim. It's a feast that is still celebrated by Jews today. One Jewish website that I found, they described it as the most fun-filled, action-packed day of the Jewish year. People dress up to wear costumes to symbolize God's hidden action in the story of Esther and Mordecai. God's name isn't mentioned in the story at all. So they dress up in these costumes like God was hiding in all of these ordinary things, in all of these ordinary actions. And it's a reminder that God is active in their lives as well. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. I want us to close in just kind of thinking about this. So um, this situation, the story that began on such a negative note, with the death of a mother and a father and the adoption of this cousin and, and this persecution by the hands of the ruling regime, like all of this, everything was so negative. Dr. Rachel Naomi Raymond writes that sometimes what appears to be a catastrophe over time becomes a strong foundation from which to live a good life. It's possible to live a good life, even though it isn't an easy life. I think that's one of the best kept secrets. And there are a lot of lessons packed into this book of Esther. There's a lot of lessons packed into the life of Mordecai the Jew And one of them is this, that whatever comes our way, that we need to stand up and face it and live trusting in God. The book closes saying that Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. I invite you to stand. We'll close in prayer.
Lord, this ancient story comes to us and we are reminded that you are at work in every situation. Even when we don't hear your name, even when we don't see you active, you are acting. And God, it's a reminder to us that we need to be the kind of people who won't give in to fear, but who will stand up and, and be the noble people you've called us to be. It's a reminder to us that we need to be the kind of people who will encourage others to do the same, who will push other people to avoid fear, who will push other people to represent you well in this world, that will encourage one another, that will pray for one another, that will fast for one another. God, I ask that you would use this story to continue to inspire us to live lives of faith. As we head into the gym and gather around tables to discuss, I pray that some of the things that come up in our conversation will continue to rattle around in our minds and in our hearts through the week as we continue to understand how it is that these lines in between the popular and famous stories of Scripture call us to live lives that honor you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.